All right, welcome back to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. I want to say a big thank you first and foremost to all of you that listened to our Memorial Day three-pack. We hope you had a great June, and, and we are back here hitting you with some cool new episodes coming up on our podcast today. You most likely have read this man's work. Um, there's a lot of work out there of his to read. And you may have seen or listened to him on a podcast, seen him on a YouTube video. There's, there's tons of free content out there from this gentleman that you can consume to learn all about BFR from one of the premier researchers in the entire world. Some have likened him to Wu-Tang Clan and their contributions to hip-hop. You most likely know him as Jeremy Linicky from the University of Ole Miss. Dr. Linicky received both bachelor's and master's degrees from Southeast Missouri State, then went on to the University of Oklahoma, much to Johnny's dismay, to receive his Ph.D., where he chiefly studied blood flow restriction exercise. Presently, Dr. Linicky is at Ole Miss University. He is the director of the Kevzer Ehrman Applied Physiology Laboratory, and his research group's primary focus is on skeletal muscle adaptations to exercise with and without the application of blood flow restriction. He is also a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine, and he's a member of the American Physiological Society. And so without further delay, we are going to kick it to Jimmy McKay, then he's going to kick it over to Johnny and myself, and we're going to let Dr. Linicky roll. So hope you enjoy this episode. Feel free to shoot us any ideas that you have for stuff you'd like for us to talk about. Easiest way to do that is to email info at owensrecoveryscience.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, fellas. You guys probably can't see this with my bad Zoom lighting, but I've got a savage Mayan tan going on right now um, from, my, from my trip. I just got back from Mexico. I don't, you know, our guest today, I'm going to introduce him in a minute. If you, if you look out there on the internet, there's only one person that beats my tan right now. It's a picture of Jeremy Linicky <laughs> with his spray on tan. It's, it's, That's it's, right. Yeah, man. So I, I tried to get there, but it rained too much. So uh, I, I can't compete with that tan. So anyways, um, our guest today is very excited. You know, this is like if, if anyone's followed blood flow restriction, which if you listen to this podcast, I'm, I'm pretty sure you do. Um, you know this guy, Jeremy Linicky. So he he is prolific in the blood flow restriction space. Um, I, I just looked to see how many BFR papers he's put out, and I, I came up, I had 142 um, out there. So I, I hate guys like this, you know, just so damn prolific, put stuff out there all the time. But if anyone deserves credit, um, for getting BFR out into the uh, out into the space for people to know, it's it's Jeremy Linicky. Um, Jeremy unfortunately did his PhD work at this community college called uh, University of Oklahoma in Bim Bim's lab, um, and and I think that's kind of where he started really churning out a lot of BFR stuff, and and then um, he went down to Ole Miss, and just to kind of let set the stage here for where Jeremy stands on this stuff at the center for the intrepid. When we were looking at potentially doing BFR for combat casualty care, we reached out to just a few people. And, and the first person we reached out to just because our guys at the Institute of Surgical Research were looking at all his work said, we need to call Jeremy Linicky. So we, we called Jeremy in the early days um, to try to get a better understanding of, of what BFR was, you know, does, does it really do what it looks like it was doing, which seemed fantastic, and, and is it safe to put on the combat casually? Um, and Jeremy became a, a consultant for the Center for the Intrepid and, and really helped us move things along. And since then, we presented ACSM together. We've been on several papers together. Um, we've got a DOD grant, which if Jeremy wants to go into it, that we've submitted a pre-proposal on, which I'm super excited, uh, looking at hypertension. Um, we'll be presenting at a conference here. It looks like Jeremy in September-ish mm -hmm. time frame as well. So anyways, without further ado, 
the one and only Jeremy Linicky. What's up, man? How's it going? Appreciate you having me on. Good. Thanks for coming on. So, you know, you do podcasts all the time. Um, this is actually finally one of those podcasts where you don't have to explain what BFR is. Right. Nice. You don't have yeah. to do the two-minute elevator pitch. But but give us a little of, of your background and, you know, I know you're bodybuilding and all that sort of stuff, but, but what got you into looking at BFR? Yeah. So I, I was in sports most of my life. Uh, I wrestled from when I was five all the way through high school. Uh, got into bodybuilding, which you mentioned. Uh, pretty mediocre. Uh, did some powerlifting. Pretty mediocre. Uh, but I, I enjoyed kind of those activities. Um, but when I was at finishing up my undergrad, you had to do an internship. Uh, I was at Southeast Missouri State. So I was kind of looking at different places to do uh, research. Uh, and I went to the University of Illinois and was doing some uh, muscle work there with Dr. Huey. Um, but I was kind of started reading some of the literature and I was reading blood flow restriction. But I, to be honest, I was an undergrad and I read uh, a paper where it actually, I think it turned out to be Dr. Abe's paper, mm -hmm. but it's like you're, you're recruiting or you're restricting blood flow and good things are happening. So I was like, well, that, that seems weird. I, I'm probably just not understanding, you know, what I'm reading. So I went to Illinois um, and then I was working out in the gym, Lane Norton and, and a couple of other people were also talking about blood flow restriction and, and kind of how to, how they might be able to apply it. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I was reading it correctly. Um, and I just started reading a lot uh, on blood flow restriction and it, it basically went from there. I went back to Southeast for my master's uh, in nutrition and exercise science, did a lot of the practical blood flow restriction, at least initially that work. And then went to the prestigious uh, University of Oklahoma uh, where I worked with Dr. Mike Benben for four years. And then I took a position at the University of Mississippi, uh, better known as Ole Miss. Uh, and I've been here for seven years or so. So yeah, I've been lucky here to get a lot of good students and we've been able to do and continue to do a lot of good work. Well, I think that's your, your lab's becoming really elite in what you're churning out, not only in the BFR space, but in the muscle fizz space. And I think the coolest thing is now we're seeing like the Jeremy Linicky tree, like these, these, these young pups are going out and, and creating their own kind of labs off of, off of what they learned under you and so. That's yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're very good. It's, it's, yeah. it's really cool to see for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're spreading out all over the place. Yeah. Um, explain. So Dr. Abe, you know, he's the OG um, and, and just brilliant guy. I think when I went to go visit you at Ole Miss, he unfortunately wasn't there during that time, but you know, a little bit, you want to give a little his history. I don't think we give him enough props. And then he's, is he still there with you at Ole Miss? <clears throat> he, he was here. He just went back uh, to Japan Uh probably for the foreseeable future. Okay. Um, but yeah, Dr. Abe, um, I think he, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is when he came to the United States, he's retired. Um, so he's retired, but he works more than probably anybody. Um, and he's got a, a very, very young mind, uh, great ideas. So um, is a wizard with the ultrasound, um, great with students. Um, so yeah, I think that his early work was in muscle growth, muscle physiology. He then started to, uh, early on do some of the blood flow restriction work and did a lot of probably what I would call the landmark papers on that. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he, I got united with him because my mentor at the time was friends with him. So my mentor at Oklahoma, Mike Benben went on sabbatical to Japan to learn how to do imaging with the ultrasound. So Dr. Abe um, and that kind of group, Fukunaga, uh, who's a legend in muscle physiology, they did a lot of the early work on using and validating the ultrasound to actually use it to quantify muscle size. So they, they did a lot of all of that work. Um, so Mike Benben went over there to learn that and then they, uh, he eventually came back over to Oklahoma, and that's where I met uh, Abe. I've, I've been familiar with his work, obviously, but we uh, slowly became uh, pretty good friends. Uh, so he's, he's this slash friendship slash mentor. Uh, so, yeah, we've stayed pretty close uh, ever since. Uh, so even when he moved away, uh, I would travel, um, and we'd write papers on the weekends. Uh, he's just a 
he's a phenomenal uh, phenomenal mind. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people don't know him that, and they probably should, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, and I'm a dummy Texan, so when we were first looking at it, at our some of our researchers at the Institute of Surgical Research, I was like, and this this Dr. Abe guy looks pretty good, and they're like, dude, that's Abe, and and they were they knew him from his ultrasound work, not his yeah. BFR work, but yeah. Corrected my dumb Texas, um, don't know how to say Abe in, in Japanese. So yeah, that's so cool, man. And um, so you've also had like Laurentino and I was there for a while. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the Brazilians kind of are doing a whole lot of BFR stuff as well. Yep. So it's kind of cool this, you know, when I talk to people and, you know, saying all the stuff's come out of Ole Miss, they're like really Ole Miss, but it's like, you got Abe, you got you guys, you got Laurentino going down there. Who knows who else is, is visiting? I was there yeah. for a day. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. 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 Well, um, let's kind of, you've got 140 something papers. So I think what we should do is go over every one of those. Start with number one. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's start let's with it. number one. Yeah. I actually, <laughs> I couldn't. Okay. I, I do know in 2011, you did the, the first meta-analysis I think has been done on BFR. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how far it's gone back, but there were enough papers already in 2011 that you could do a meta-analysis <laughs> on it. Um, but what, how about, what was your, your PhD thesis then? Yeah, I was looking at um, kind of the acute response to different loading uh, and different pressures to kind of the acute swelling, the acute EMG response, um, the discomfort, the perceptual response. So we we're doing a, a lot of different stuff like that. And then trying to set up kind of which protocol should we use yeah. when we actually run a training study, which is the first one we did when I got here. It was an extremely small study, but looking at high pressures versus low pressures. And does that actually matter for muscle adaptation? Um, and ultimately, it doesn't seem like it does, assuming you're going to failure. Uh, with muscle, uh, we have some data that suggests that vascular adaptations might actually be pressure dependent. But I mean, that's very preliminary, you know, finding. Uh, but that was kind of uh, what I did for my dissertation was just kind of looking at different combinations of load, load and pressure to try and see when we do a training study, which one should we pick? Yeah, um, that's basically what it was. I, I think that was one of my initial questions. I like typical clinician guy. Hey, Jeremy, what pressure should we use? What's the protocol we have for ACL? <laughs> like asking all this stuff early yeah. on. Man, just so much unknowns. You know, we were having to just kind of guesstimate what we thought. Let me let me touch base because um, we've got some kind of really interesting stuff. Not only with your grant, um, with the with some of the vascular groups at Walter Reed, we're potentially looking at. BFR with dialysis patients to, to kind of dialysize the um, arterialize the AV fistula. Um, and so what are your thoughts? You guys have done a lot of work on it with pressure for the vascular changes. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know anything about what you just described. Um, and I, I think the way I always try to discuss it, especially when we start getting into the clinical world is that I'm not a clinician, right. uh, but I do feel like, uh, I have a general pretty good idea of how it responds to normal people, healthy people. And I let clinicians take that with their clinical expertise and roll with it, how they, uh, how they choose. Um, Cause I, you know, you know, and I'll get to the question here in a second, but you know, when talking with you and, and going to some of these events, I've been fortunate to go to where there's a lot of clinicians, it, it it's pretty quick. You, you, you learn pretty quickly that, Oh, wow. There's a lot of things that you need to consider uh, when you're dealing with a clinical population. So I, I think approaching it like I have been approaching it has, has been useful. Uh, but I think with the vascular adaptations, when we look at, you know, kind of increasing blood flow to a limb, uh, those appear to be driven by local mechanisms. Uh, but it does appear, at least to us, that there could be some pressure dependency there. But then you have to kind of balance it with the, the perceptual response. Tolerance. So yeah, it's like, well, higher pressures might be a little bit better, but it's going to be a lot more discomforting. Is that something that we can balance out? Right. Um, so I think the, the other thing that I'm interested in, and we've, we've got some work that suggests that it doesn't do anything negative is the venous side, which is largely neglected. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious if when we apply repeated blood flow restriction, when we're pooling blood repeatedly over and over and over and over again, does that do some sort of valve damage? Um, or does it, does it make the venous side not respond quite as normally as it normally would? 
And so far, it doesn't appear that it, it does anything negative to that, which right. I, I think is good. But I'm still curious about that. Um, and I think we need to do a lot more kind of uh, larger studies. And I think that we've read enough of the literature. I know all, all of us have that it does seem like it's overall safe. But mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we need to, to know uh, with, and this is something we can get from larger studies, is are there certain people uh, that you're going to miss with smaller scale studies that maybe are contraindicated uh, that we can learn if we actually increase the sample size. So that's something that's also of interest to me. Yeah, sucks because the increased sample size, it, it, it equals dollar dollar bills, baby. And, and it's hard to get those, unfortunately. So yeah, and so that's interesting because, so what, what we're talking about with the bachelor guys at Walter Reed is if you're going to dialysis, they take a vein and they connect it to the artery in your arm and it has to turn into an artery over time. Um, and so it arterializes, but it takes six to eight weeks. And if you can increase that time at all, um, that, that's huge for dialysis patients. Some people need dialysis like tomorrow. Um, yeah. And so what, what those guys were asking, and they really feel like on, on what, what they understand is that you can speed up this process. But they asked me what you know, we had in the BFR literature that's looked at the venous side. And it was like, um, pretty much nothing, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's all artery. But what they really feel is, frequent bouts of very low pressure will maybe affect the venous side in, in a more positive direction. So we're, we're hoping to kind of start looking at that um, as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's, it's all artery based. Yeah. Well, another kind of like, this is a bigger trial moving in another area because you kind of like, you, you built all the foundation for a lot of us with, with the muscle side, but but you and Dominic and Nita just put out a paper, um, I, I think it was last year, on, on BFR and its potential for diabetes. Um, and, and those guys, you know, I, yeah. working with them, I, I talked with Dominic and, and years ago to set this trial up. Um, what are your thoughts on the diabetic populations and what do you think BFR can do, not only from the sarcopenic muscle, but also from affecting like insulin tolerance and things like that? Yeah, I, I think I'll just be upfront. I, th I just think we need data. I think that's where we're at with a lot of it. I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of reasons to believe that it could be a metabolically quite useful. I think a lot of the uh, some of the the data out of I think the Scandinavian groups have have suggested there could be a, a, some uh, some potential there, mm -hmm. um, and you can make a a, a a great case for why it might be beneficial for lots of populations. But I think. We just have to get down and do the work right. um, and, and get it approved and things like that. I, I think then we would know. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I think it should be beneficial. Um, but I think we just need to do uh, some large scale studies. Yeah, I think, I think we've got to move past kind of this pilot work into yeah. some trials. Yeah, I wonder if I could jump in and just kind of pick your brain, Jeremy. I mean, I would agree with you. I think there's a lot of space for data, you know, just sheer data to, to kind of tell us about this. But if we're just talking the BFR, are there think responses to BFR um, that you think we really truly know? Like we know this happens if you do BFR. Would if and you could kind of run with that wherever that goes. But yeah, I think that's. Uh... It, it's actually kind of interesting that you brought it's that up. It's a loaded question a little bit too, which I'm fine with. Yeah. No, I'm tell him it's a great question because he gets this big head and then when he puts it out, he's like, no. <laughs> hey, Jamie Burr said it was a nice idea, Johnny. That's it, all I'm saying. He's it is a polite Canadian. It's a, it's a great question because it's one of the things that, you know, we've kind of thought about too. And this is like three years ago when I was, um, you know, I've also outside of blood flow restriction, but it's related is this idea of muscle growth and strength adaptation. So once we started seeing these repeatedly, I, I think one of the things that uh, kind of like what you're getting at Kyle, it's like, what, what can we, what do we actually know? Yeah. Um, what, what not that we were, that we're linking together? What is, what actually has some evidence? And I think what has evidence is um, we, we have a pretty good indication that when you do blood flow restriction, you will see an increase in muscle size. Uh, you will see an increase uh, and muscle strength, assuming that the load is probably around 20 or 30% of your one RM. Uh, it, it will, it, 
I feel pretty confident in saying it will not be as high as high load exercise, um, assuming you don't repeatedly practice, but it will increase. Um, I think there, I think there is a real increase in strength. And I think that the muscle size, uh, is very similar to that of high load exercise that I feel completely confident. in. I think it's pretty repeatable finding that with higher pressure, there's greater discomfort, uh, with higher pressure, the blood, the acute blood pressure response might be a little bit higher, but probably not higher than high load exercise, right. uh, probably pretty similar. Uh, but, and importantly, it comes back down to baseline, at least in normal, healthy individuals. So it's not that you increase blood pressure and it's elevated for the next few hours. At least the data that we have, it usually comes back within 10, 10 or so minutes in normal people. Yeah. Um, so that I feel quite confident in, in saying. The vascular side being pressure dependent, uh, I'm not as confident. I think we have very limited data, but might be something that would require a higher pressure. and and. And our, well, what's interesting about the vascular data is we had people doing a tremendous amount of repetitions because the whole adage is if you, as long as you do enough repetitions, you don't need blood flow restriction. And I think that's true for muscle growth. Uh, but with the vascular adaptation, that's not what we saw. We saw that it was pressure dependent. So that I think would be worth investigating a little bit more. That's awesome. I don't know you didn't say that, systemic yeah. effects, Johnny. I don't, um, uh, there was nothing systemic in there. <laughs> Did you bring up systemic? You're get no. angry no. It's just where everything goes sometimes, I feel like. And, and, I, and I've seen Jeremy's opinion on systemic effects of exercise. Yeah, I think, I think it depends on what it is. Um, muscle, at least the response to exercise uh, with muscle growth seems to be pretty local seems like that might also be the case with the vascular adaptation. Um, I think if you're looking at changes in like pain tolerance, uh, changes in pain pressure threshold, that does appear to be uh, quite systemic, which I was surprised by, to be honest. I I'm always pretty skeptical uh, about some of that, uh, but we had a control group um, and we did find global responses to, to pain. Yeah. In both blood flow restriction and non-blood flow restricted exercise, isometric hand grip, uh, that's not that's under review right now. But I, if I didn't have that control group, I would have not believed it. Yeah. Um, and if and if I don't know, I, I was quite surprised, but I, I'm convinced that there are some things that are systemic, but the muscle stuff, uh, I don't think so. Uh, and that goes back to a lot of those, the Matarame paper, some of the, one of the Cook papers, uh, where they see what they perceive to be global changes uh, and, and adaptation. I'm not convinced that that's a repeatable finding, uh, but yeah. I could be wrong, but I, I, yeah. I don't think I am about that. I think we're moving on from that, you know, although uh, speaking at an orthopedic surgeon conference and that's the first thing they go to, you know, what about the systemic effect and growth hormone? Um, <laughs> and so, but I, I, I agree. I think muscle vascular, if, if maybe we really start looking at this with bone, that stuff that we're looking at needs to be local, but you know, if, if your paper, you know, when it comes out, it's going to kind of back up what Luke and Steven found as well with this kind of systemic pain analgesic effect. Yeah. We're doing a follow-up right now that we just got approved a couple of days ago, uh, that will hopefully look at this as well, yeah. uh, with a little bit more of a dynamic exercise, uh, protocol. Uh, we, we had moved to isometric uh, during the pandemic because we could control that very well. We don't have people moving around. Uh, so the isometric stuff, isometric hand grip itself is a pretty cool modality, but we didn't find blood flow restriction was able to augment that. Uh, but the isometric hand grip by itself is pretty intense at 30%, yeah. which yeah. I was surprised by. Much harder than you think. Yeah, well, I, I think I on the clinic side, we've seen the pain reduction too, clinically yeah. a little bit. I mean, one of the really kind of remarkable pain reductions that I got out of a single patient was post-op ACL and we combined neuromuscular stem with BFR. And this dude had been in pain for three weeks and he, he literally just walked out in significantly less pain. And when he came back the next visit, significantly less pain. So it was very interesting to to see that. Um, I'd be curious to see if some people do some pain work with neuromuscular stem. Cause I'm kind of curious there that could have a lot of value for like a total knee, um, an ACL reconstruction, that kind of thing. So 
Yeah, there is a couple studies on the e-stem. I don't know specifically about the, I don't think they included a pain assessment, Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah. It, it did appear to be somewhat useful, but I agree that's a, that's a cool area for sure. Yeah, we're seeing a lot clinically, like our first RCT we did in the DOD, it was, you included in your pain um, review that you put out there. Um, we were already seeing this analgesic benefit in, in the service members. So we made sure to, because we couldn't find really anything in the BFR literature that had addressed pain at all. Yeah. There wasn't just much in the clinical populations and the ones that did just like extreme hypertrophy. So we yeah. added the coos to it and, and they had significantly improved pain scale after four yeah. weeks of doing it. So it was cool to see. Well, getting back off of this, um, you know, global versus systemic type of thing, I think we can kind of close the door on that. But, you know, we, we did a paper lessons from the lab um, several years ago, and, and you've done a lot of work at looking at what do you think on the proximal side? You know, Abe did a the cool paper where he saw some nice change in the glute meat or the glute. Um, so what do you think of proximal, the best way to go after that? Yeah, I, I think... <sighs> That's another one that I think we need. We just need more. Um, and we have seen it a couple times, but I feel better if we did it again with a control group. Um, but it does appear that it's, it's, it's possible that if you apply them to the proximal portion, so the uppermost portion of your arm, uh, and you're doing like a bench press exercise that the, the chest may pick up some of the load when the triceps fatigue, I think depending on, you know, the, the population that you're doing it with, I think one of the things that you, you might be able to do is just superset it. So do something where you know you're going to fatigue the triceps and under blood flow restriction and then go to the chest press. And then you could, it, it might be able to ensure that it's doing a little bit more. Messing around with it myself in the gym, I do feel like there is something to it because uh, it's like, I've been to where it's like, it's almost where it's cramping up. I mean, it's not under restriction at all. Yeah. Uh, but I'd feel more comfortable if we had some larger studies, but yeah. it, it, I think when you say it's possible, I think the next question that people have is, well, <laughs> well, how's it working? Uh, it goes to the, is it a global response? Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I think it could be a recruitment uh, activation response, but again, that's just another hypothesis. Yeah, I think we feel it's a recruitment thing. And, and our best guidance right now is, you know, it probably needs a, more volume, maybe more load, um, you know, because this is a recruitment thing. It's not going to fatigue like a quad wheel if you're, right. if you're going after the glute with these like Jane Fonda exercises and rehab. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Brad Lambert's shoulder paper just came out last week um, and they did find some, some pretty good changes in the shoulder. Um, and they, they had a control group that didn't do as well, but it was pretty high volume for, yeah. for shoulder exercises, um, which go do for BFR shoulder exercises and, and you're freaking smoked, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And we do so many labs, you know, teaching these courses, to the clinicians that we see in a lab, you know, having people doing squats with BFR on one leg or, you know, some sort of shoulder scatching exercise with the cuff on one arm and, you know, majority of the time they're like damn this is really harder and i'm feeling much more fatigue in my, my proximal muscles when you're doing it unilateral right um, so there's probably something about I mean, with you it's it's the most common question we get and yeah. obviously it's the one where we're like we just really don't know right now yeah <laughs> otherwise they feel like it might just be limited to the extremity right yeah so much of rehab is the shoulder and the hip yeah know? so if, if we do yeah. start seeing good changes there um that, that's going to be huge for us yeah you put out an interesting paper, um, and I haven't been able to read it fully yet, about BFR <laughs> and the potential for um, changes in cognition. Yeah. You want to kind of go down down that road as well? So, you know, yeah. I, I got people texting me like, cool, it makes you smarter now? What, what does it not do type of thing? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, to, I also want to be clear that I'm not an expert uh, on cognition. We were able to work with uh, Dr. Emily Frith, who's at Penn State right now, um, and she's really good with that kind of thing. But my student, uh, the lead author, uh, Yuji Yamada, is, he's, he's read a lot of that work. Um, I think the, the idea started uh, at ACSM a couple years ago, actually probably three years ago at this point. George Brooks was given the Wolf Lecture, uh, and, he's got, and he had a postdoc or a PhD student, Hashimoto, who presented some stuff on lactate and executive function, which is uh, kind of uh, one of the domains of cognition. Um, and it's more specifically interference control. 
So, which is very important um, element of cognition, but they found that there could be something there with lactate being used as a fuel for the brain uh, and improving one aspect of, of cognition. So we reached out and we uh, partnered with uh, Vasper on a study, uh, which you know was started and then stopped immediately due to COVID. Yeah. Uh, and we have yet to be able to start that up. So it's a little bit different type of blood flow restriction, uh, but I think it, um, but, but that is something that we're interested uh, just in, in general, but it appears that, because my, my thinking was, sorry, I'm rambling, but my thinking was with the lactate, you know, lactate is something we see is augmented quite often uh, with blood flow restriction. So I wonder if we were able to produce that, produce a little bit more, could we augment interference control? So that was kind of how the paper got generated. Um, and then he was looking at multiple domains, uh, but the one that has data behind it, only about two studies, um, and only one of them was, was, I think, a really strong study, but it was published in MSSE, uh, did suggest that when you walk with blood flow restriction, uh, you did see a little bit of a greater change in lactate, and then you saw a little bit of a greater change uh, in executive function. But, you know, those are just parallel changes. It's not necessarily meaning that that's what did it. But I do think that that's an, an area that has a lot of potential. So the thing I liked about that paper is that we covered a lot of different domains and covered how to investigate each one of them and then kind of laid it out. If this is something you are interested in, here's how you might be able to address it. So I feel like it's it's a hypothesis paper, but it lays out some ways that we might be able to get at some of these questions. So I, yeah. I thought he did a really nice job with that. And I feel comfortable only because we had somebody who under, she, she actually has a PhD um, in uh, kind of health and exercise science as well as a PhD in psychology. Um, and now she's doing a postdoc at Penn State in kind of a neuroscience lab. So I only felt comfortable diving into that because we had we were able to work with her on that on that manuscript. So um, but I, I do feel like there's a that's an area that hasn't received a lot of attention. Um, yeah. so I've become a little bit interested in that. No, it's, it's super cool. And, you know, um, the, the whole lactate shuttle theory and everything, it, it makes perfect sense. So the beautiful thing with BFR is you can really trap and hold lactate for yeah. a long time. I mean, it's kind of way different than you could ever get with just traditional exercise. So, you know, yeah. just, you just get it in there, keep the cuffs on, just keep it trapped. Um, and then release it. Vasper, you couldn't get enough pressure up to, to get the, the lactate response. Such well. Yeah, it, it is di difficult to control the pressure because it's fluid pressure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what we see, but I yeah. think that, uh, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of combinations going on, uh, with Vasper. They have the cooling, yeah. so, which could have its own benefits. Um, but yeah, I, I think that review was more focused on traditional uh, blood flow restriction, so just applying the restriction. But I guess to get the, to Kyle's earlier point, that you could argue that that's a systemic effect if it's real. You yeah. have the you lactate produced from the muscle going to the brain. Um, so, all I heard was you said systemic effects are real, gonna, Jeremy. That's all. Hey, we're going to tweet this podcast out. Jeremy believes in systemic <laughs> Jeremy effects. endorses systemic just, It just depends. Depends on what it is. Well, we should talk offline. Um, Carrie Hoppus, who's at the Army Baylor Schoolhouse here at, at the base, um, she does a lot of, of neurologic and cognitive function stuff. She's always been kind of hitting me up on, on where yeah. to go with BFR. I need to send her this paper. And yeah. we, we got all these students. You know, we discussed this because there was – there was a talk at one time, you know, you kind of feel like you're more in the zone. Sometimes you get done with BFR and it's almost like a mind F, you know, you're like, what the hell just happened to me? Um, but, but maybe in the zone and, and we discussed with some of the special forces guys, you know, maybe getting a shoot house and just seeing if, if it made your, your shooting skills better after a bout and did, did that do something to you? Yeah. That'd be interesting. Yeah. We, we got that. I, I would be willing to be part of like that pilot data. That sounds like fun to me. Yeah. yeah. We'll go up to Fort Bragg behind the, behind the yeah. gate there. And I'm in. <coughs> shoot the real, real yeah. guns. <laughs> um, you did early on, like a lot of the discussion. Um, and I, I'm not sure if you did any of the studies, but about this whole passive BFR or self swelling approach. And so, you know, it's always a little confusing to people when you're discussing it. 
you want to go in your thoughts on what's happening in VFR with a lack of exercise and mechanism? Yeah, that's, I'm very interested in that. We, we've done a lot, uh, not a lot. We've done some acute work on that, mm -hmm. but none of the, uh, you know, long-term studies where you're just applying a cuff. I mean, I think that has some real utility maybe when you can't do any exercise. Um, and that's work that is best done in a, in kind of a hospital setting, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I have a, I'm interested in the swelling effect. I mean, we wrote, me and Abe wrote about that a long time ago. That was, I think that may have been our first paper together on uh, the acute swelling effect. And we do, I, I feel like we have some indirect evidence that when you do cycles of inflation and deflation in the absence of contraction, it does appear that the muscle itself swells um, more so than just venous pulling. So some of what you're getting from the image is just a collection of blood, but we see it maintained at least to some degree when, when we deflate the cuff. So we think that there's some swelling that's actually happened. So you can, again, make a, a lot of hypothesis-driven kind of ideas for how that might be anabolic or how that might be anti-catabolic. Um, I don't know how important the swelling effect is when you combine it with exercise. I think um, the activation, all that other stuff, I think may supersede it. But I am interested, and in if there really is something beneficial going on when we apply a cuff in the absence of exercise, I just wonder if some of that's not driven by swelling because the mechanisms behind growth could potentially be quite different than the mechanisms behind maintenance. Right. Um, and I, th I think you could make that argument uh, that they are. So I think the acute swelling response, that kind of that pump, I think there could be something to that. I, my, my opinion on it with respect to exercise has lessened substantially over the years. Uh, and to be honest, it, it's quite difficult to even study that in exercise because swelling is almost always going to occur. Yep. Um, but I guess in that case, if swelling does occur then and growth is greater in one, then maybe we've already answered that question. Uh, but so maybe it's important for maintaining, but not so important for changes in growth. But um, in, in your gut, do you feel like it's more of a catabolically down regulation versus maybe driving a bit of mTOR. There's that, that pilot, I forgot who the authors are that, you know, they showed MRF1 was, was decreased when they did it passively versus, uh, you know, not doing it. Yeah, I, I, I think it could be. I, I really struggle with it, to be honest, because, you know, you could argue, well, MRF1's not, you know, that's a marker, but it's not actually quantifying breakdown. Um, and then you have the protein metabolism guys who would say, well, do we even want to suppress breakdown? Uh, is that a good thing? Um, and it's probably, a, you know, always a balance anyway. So I don't know. And, and then I, I, I wonder how much of it's confounded by we're, we're looking at the growth literature and, and trying to make that fit to a maintenance uh, literature, because I think that's starting to come out that those might be completely different things. Um, but well, in the, yeah. the clinical side, we're not in the growth, you know, yeah. we're in the, like shit's going to hell in a handbasket right yeah. now. You know, this person is just breakdown. They're losing it quickly. Um, and I, so I, if you can slow that, that's this, it's this passive is the best clinical application I think you could have. I think it's worth trying. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the papers that we wrote early on was this idea of progression. So if you can't, if you, if you can resist this exercise, then do that. If you can't use blood flow restriction, if you can't do that, can you walk? Uh, maybe walking slowly won't do anything, but walking slowly with blood flow restriction might be able to help you get back to your baseline. Right. Can't walk? Well, try this until you can do that. And that was kind of our idea um, is to progress yeah. back to your normal life. Because to me, I, maybe it's a very reductionist way to think, but I want to know what happens when we just apply blood flow restriction when we don't add something that's so powerful already, which is exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really have a tough time discussing it because there is published data that suggests that maybe there is something to that, but not a lot of published data. And in my mind, I start battling. It's like, is there a reason why there's not a lot of data? Um, but 
Yeah, back to the know, old Jeremy undergrad reading the BFR literature. Yeah, so oh, it's, one of, it wrong. it's one of those things where it's like, maybe it's worth trying. Yeah. Um, and I think you have some foundation for why you think that would be useful to try, but not a lot of data. But I think there's yeah. good reasons why it might work. And I think there's this new bucket that we're really looking at clinically is, um, you know, just hypoxia. You know, it, it was BFR and exercise, and now it's is does this hypoxic event and the swelling event drive something, and, and it's pretty cool to see it go that way. We're we're, we're starting up. Just went through IRB a hip fracture trial um, inpatient, so we'll be applying it with e-stem. So just very minimal contraction in elderly hip fracture patients in the hospital um, yeah. for, for two weeks, um, basically, and tracking them as they go to like a step down facility. They'll still be doing it, so um, we'll see. Because that that's a those folks, that's lots of times life or death, you know, hip yeah. will, will take out Grandma Smith. Um, so it's yeah. interesting to see. No, that's awesome. I mean, especially if we can get it to where it's better, exceeds the standard of care. Yeah. Um, what about your thoughts on uh, doing aerobic? So Abe put out, you know, probably the, the classic aerobic paper, 15 minutes on the bike, just everything was, was really great, you know, that came out of that study so much so. You know, right off the bat, that's how we started applying it at the Center for the Intrepid when we did aerobic, just jump on the bike and, and put the cuff on. Or yeah. It sucks. It's so hard. Um, we've actually, you know, I'm kind of a high pressure guy. We were doing everything at 80 percent. And I, I've, I've seen some people crash and burn, like catch up off the bike. So we, we've been really tapering it down to 60 percent. Um, starting out, we actually got a, a group here in San Antonio that did a study for us. It looks like 60 percent kind of did everything that 80% would do for us on, on a, on a walking or bike protocol. What, what do you, how do you like to skin the cat on aerobic steady state pressure, maybe thoughts or intervals? Yeah, that's one where I think that the, and I haven't done a lot of work on the aerobic side, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because I, I think that it does have some real clinical probably utility. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think, and there's never been a head to head comparison in the same study, but I think the biggest bang for your buck will be resistance training with blood flow restriction. But to your point, if you can't do that, uh, my guess would be is walking probably higher pressure is probably going to be pretty important uh, mm -hmm. if they can stand it. Um, I think when, when they cycle and your protocols, are the, are the legs out in front of them? Are they, it's like a recumbent bike? No, regular. Usually okay. just a regular upright. Because I, I feel like the, the, when your legs are out in front of you, I feel like it's way more intense. Uh, I would agree a, with that. Than a standard bike. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our, the walking protocols that we've done in the past, I honestly did not, for a normal healthy person, did not feel like it was They're not bad. that intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the so cycling. My, yeah. Cycling. My guess would be, um, and we've done some cycling in normal people, but uh, back when I was in Oklahoma, but the protocol was based on heart rate. So there was a lot of issues with how we applied it. Uh, which we now know now uh, that you should, shouldn't do that. But I, I honestly still don't know how effective it would have been in that population uh, because many of them are so active that they're coming to work out at an intensity that's much lighter than they did to get here. Right. Um, whereas I think with resistance exercise, even when you're at a low load, that's pretty tough exercise. Um, so I, I think with aerobic, I, Keep in mind, I haven't done a lot of work in that. I think it, the higher the pressure is probably better. I, I like steady state. Yeah. Uh, just keep them walking. I think the Abe's early work with the, the straddling the treadmill, I don't know for sure. I never asked him, but my guess would be is that that's kind of getting at kind of the sets. And plus it allows it to pull a little bit of blood because yeah. you knocked out the muscle pump when you're just straddling. Um, but yeah, I, I think... I think if you're a normal, healthy person and you're doing aerobic exercise with blood flow restriction, thinking that you're going to see large changes, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. But I think if you cannot do resistance exercise or you're limited or you're in rehabilitation, then it might actually have quite a bit of benefit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, you know, I don't know if you've ever gone through rehab, but, you know, typically it's like go warm up on the bike for 10 or 15 minutes. It's, you know, it's just that's so you can go check your Tinder account as a therapist or go, go mess around <laughs> in the back. Um, and, and so now, you know, at our place, there wasn't a warm up on the bike. You know, if you went there, there was cuffs all around the bike and it was yeah. 
warm up on the bike, but make sure you get one of the techs to get a cuff on you. Um, and so it's, it's beautiful because most people are able to spin, but that's one of the few things they can do, you know, if you're like two weeks out post-op ACL type thing. Right. So it's, it's a super easy kind of, I, I love that protocol. I don't think it's done enough clinically. Yeah. You guys discussed before we got on and I was in Mexico. I, I probably could have read the paper because I spent my last three days on the pot. Um, <laughs> you had a paper come out. I, Kyle, you said last week and I, I don't even know what it, it is. Last week. So you want to go into what that paper was? Yeah. Um, as you know, we've gotten kind of into the kind of blood pressure response. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, there are some people who have published some papers who are kind of raising kind of the question of, you know, does, what does blood flow restriction do to the cardiovascular system? Mm -hmm. uh, and most of them are focused on the acute change. Um, but again, I, I think a lot of that's a little bit overstated in, in my opinion, uh, because generally they're looking at the acute response to blood pressure. And they're saying, you know, when we apply blood flow restriction with the, you know, we get a blood pressure response. When we do the same exercise without it, the blood pressure response is lower. But it's like, of course, I mean, you're restricting blood flow. Yeah. But I, I think the, the important point is, is that what's the magnitude of the change? And it's usually comparable to, sometimes it's greater, but usually comparable to high load exercise. And it's very acute. So it goes up, but it comes back down. Now, I don't want to discredit their paper uh, because I do feel like one of the things that they said is that there could be some populations where we really need to think about this, right. where their, their response with the sympathetic system um, could be much greater than a normal person. So I think those papers are very important, but I think sometimes uh, in the context is lost when, when people are translating that out. So in our minds, I was like, well, I'm interested in... <clears throat> So if we have a blood pressure response, kind of like with high load exercise, okay, it's acutely elevated, but what does it do to the resting level? So um, I had one of my students, uh, Vicki Wong, she, I had to go through all the literature um, and we're, we were just do a meta-analysis, you know, where uh, she was in a class already, kind of learning about meta-analysis. Um, so I kind of expected there to be quite a bit um, uh, of work looking at that. And she comes back and she's like, I found four studies. <laughs> and I'm like, you need to go back and look again. Yeah. Um, and she's great. And she's like, okay. So she went back and uh, looked again. I, I was like, you got it. You, something's not right. Um, and I think what the, the problem was is what our criteria, our criteria said, we needed you to do blood flow restricted exercise compared to the same exercise without blood flow restriction. And it had to be between subject. So that eliminated a tremendous amount of studies. So lots of people have looked at blood pressure, but very few, only four to, to our knowledge, have looked at uh, the, the change in blood pressure uh, where the only thing that differs is the application of blood flow restriction. Uh, so we were looking at systolic, diastolic, and heart rate. Um, and I think the biggest point of the paper is how surprised I was at how little work has been done. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of it was to, to help us prepare for the grant that, you know, you helped us with, uh, to try and look at some of this stuff with larger sample sizes. Uh, but what we, all of the studies that were included, none of them were seeking to study the effects of blood pressure. They were all secondary. That was their kind of their, just something they did. It was not the focus. And I think that's, that, that's pretty important. So we didn't find any difference in diastolic. We didn't find any difference in heart rate. We did find a little bit of an elevation that exceeded the control um, with systolic. Systolic, yeah. But the confidence interval is very wide. Um, so we didn't estimate with any precision. And there's just not a lot of studies. So I think the biggest surprise is uh, how little studies have actually designed to answer that question. Yeah. Because many studies are looking at high load versus low load BFR or uh, within subject, which is our lab has done a lot of. So it's like, yeah, you can look at within, within limb changes in blood flow and vascular changes, but the blood pressure data is really irrelevant because both limbs are impacting it. Right, right. So, yeah, I, I think... What, what it tells us more than anything is that we need larger studies 
that are specifically designed to answer that question. So we're in the process of doing that. Um, we'll have an answer with that, hopefully with the DOD grant, but if not, um, we're gonna be looking at that next year. Uh, one, uh, my student Rob Spitz is proposing that um, in the fall uh, to look at that with, with large sample size. Um, so I think that would be hopefully uh, quite useful because if it does impact resting blood pressure, what is the magnitude of that? Um, and if it doesn't, then that would also be good to, to know. But I'm not, I'm not convinced that it does. I don't think that this would sway me, but what it does tell me is that we don't really know. Yeah. Um, we need some studies that primarily looked at that because most of the studies were focused on looking at muscle size and strength. Um, they just happen to measure blood pressure. So, yeah. We did a systematic review analysis of looking at the studies that, that looked at BFR in, in individual hypertension. I think we found five papers. And again, it wasn't even that the, the BP was what they were looking at. Like you said, it was all about muscle strength and size. And, and same thing, just a, a rise in systolic, um, but didn't even see a, a significant rise. Everything else kind of stayed the same. Um, yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's no, that's no shot at those papers. I mean, that you focus on what you're trying to focus on, but I think what it tells us is that, okay, maybe that's an area where we can do a lot of good work and yeah. where it could be nice and novel. Well, and that's the thing, the work's not out there, but then some of these papers, like you talk about that throw out a, a something like a call for concern yeah. in your title. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of like, well, I, I get your point, but we don't even have that for this paper to be this kind of inflammatory and freak people out a little bit. Is yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. And to your point, cause I, I did, suggest that, well, there might be certain populations where this could be a big concern, but again, we don't have that data either. No, um, but still, I, I, yeah, I, I still agree with the point being made uh, by the authors, but yeah, I, I think that when I first saw it, I was like, oh, wow, did, did something come out? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that when you're mixing and matching, uh, especially the older literature, because, you know, they weren't applying relative pressures yeah. um, and I think that we think that might be important. Maybe it's not, but we think that we know the acute response uh, does appear to be pressure dependent. So it seems like it probably would matter. Uh, but those older studies, they, they weren't able to do that. So yeah. yeah, it's so hard to tell when we look back at those. And Larry Kahalen, who's down at University of Miami, he does a lot of cardiovascular work. We, we work with him quite a bit. Um, so far in his pilot, um, looking at heart failure patients, the worst ejection fraction, so the worst patients um, as far as heart failure is concerned, we are responding the best from what he's looking at with BFR. Um, so moderate heart failure is doing okay, but, but the worst ones are, um, I'm sorry, the worst ones are really responding the best, which, which is very interesting. And I think that's what's so cool where we are in like, you know, your DOD grant, if, if we get it, that's where BFR, man, you'll just see this crazy proliferation. Like you, we got a couple hundred thousand ACLs a year in the US. We have millions of hypertensive individuals and if all it takes is some hand grip and, and a tourniquet or, or something easy like that, yeah. to change BP, it's huge. Or if yeah. Dominic and Nina's, you know, diabetes trial shows that they can control insulin tolerance. Holy heck, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, speaking of, you know, we talked to Jamie Burr a couple of weeks ago about this. Speaking of people um, putting out a statement to something, the muscle damage piece. So we, we did that uh, Frontiers in Physiology paper, and, and then we had some of our colleagues out in Europe say that, you know, BFR looks like it should be a cause for concern on muscle damage. What, what are your thoughts? You know, we did a response to that. Um, yeah. I think, I, I, go ahead. I think that to be, I, I thought we addressed that in the, uh, the original uh, paper. I think we did um, very I, well. I thought we addressed that, um, you know, there might be certain people where they might respond negatively. Um, and it might be worth easing into that. Um, we all, I think we also talked about the repeat about effect. Um, and for me with the safety, I think the, the question is, is there, the question is not, is there a risk? There's, of course there's a risk, but the question is, does it increase when you apply blood flow restriction, is the risk increased over the same exercise without blood flow restriction? That, to me, that's, the question. Um, when we look at the muscle damage, overall, it doesn't appear that there is. So I think that, I think what their letter wanted to do was highlight 
certain cases where, where maybe we, we should be more focused. Um, and maybe there are certain people who maybe they are more damaged, but I thought maybe, I thought we highlighted that in the first one, yeah. uh, but maybe they wanted us to highlight that just a little bit more, um, which we did in the response. But yeah, I, I think that the, the part that I struggle with personally too, is that we do see soreness, a hell of a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we very rarely see prolonged decrements in torque. Um, and even those groups, when they look at the fiber, I don't know that they've ever seen structural damage to the fiber. They see some stress, which yeah. I, I could believe, but all the Z lines seem like, if I remember correctly, intact. Yeah. So Taking uh, biopsy stuff that we looking right at the muscle fiber, they're great. Right. Yeah. So, so, but again, I guess to their point, um, there may be certain people who you want to, you know, uh, be more cognizant of, but I think that that was addressed in the initial one. Yeah. And you can't base anything off just creating kinase, you know, and if that's what you're hanging your hat on, I, I could, I could get CK levels on service members after doing rucks, heavy rucks yeah. all day and, and maybe through the roof, but I'm not sending them to the ER. There's yeah. A lot more I, I thought, like yeah, I thought, I think it was Jamie Burr who brought that up too. I, I think that was actually new to me. I didn't realize that there was maybe different thresholds for have you just done acute exercise or have you done. So I remember when we looked at, we did a case study several years ago on, on a bodybuilder and we didn't ask him to alter his training ever. We just took the blood whenever it was scheduled to take it. And his creatine kindness always came back flagged because it was always after like some heavy leg day, always. And they're like, you need to look at this creatine kindness. So I was like, oh, I guess it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more cluster of, of, of findings that we have to see clinically to be that concerned. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. It's interesting, um, dude. Everything you've done from the translational space has been huge for us on the clinical side, and and I love now that, that you know you're moving into the vascular and, and hypertension. I mean, this is going to be huge for us having having you involved in that clinical population. And I'm hoping we get this grant and can move that way. Um, so, anything else you want to tease? or you got coming out or you're interested in, or? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we, we've always, and, you know, you talked about some of the early work. The, the first ever work I did was trying to develop kind of a practical way to apply this to not to clinicians, but to normal people in the gym who don't want to buy some sort of system. Um, so I've always had some interest in that. Zach Bell's my student who's been focused on that most recently. Um, yeah. But I think we, we're always doing some sort of work with that and trying to see, can we teach somebody to feel the pressure? Yeah. Um, and then they can apply that with the, the cuffs themselves. I think we have a lot of work to do on that. I, I think that the when we do it, the, the range is so wide. Um, but I mean, none of it's under arterial occlusion, which is good, but I think we have a lot more work to do using that method. Um, I think Abe's work where we pulled at a specific length and looked at the reduction in blood flow that actually probably is, is the clearest way to do the practical work. But again, I think I would only recommend that in people who aren't in a clinical setting. I think in a clinical yeah. setting, you need to know for sure what the pressure is that's being applied. But yeah, I, I'm never going to completely abandon that, I don't think. I'm always interested in that. That's what my thesis work was, uh, using knee wraps to try and figure this out. That was my first paper was kind of promoting that, proposing that idea. Uh, back in, I think, 2008. Yeah. Um, but well, that's yeah. big for us, too, because we're doing it in the clinic. So we're endorsing it, you know, and hopefully you're doing it right. One of the problems with, you know, if you're trying a practical or some of these pump up things, you know, there was a, a paper with B Strong where lactate did an increase, rate of perceived exertion did an increase, and compared to low load, and then the Hokinson's, it, everything was much, much higher. Yeah. So it's like if you're using something like that in the clinic, you're probably cheating the patient as well. You know, that's not cool. But right. we're endorsing it and the patients get done and they're like, how do I do this now if I want to keep going to the gym? And a lot of times, yeah. like, oh, geez, I don't know. Um, here's Jeremy's papers on wraps, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but if we could dial that in and say, okay, yes, you can, you know, because nowadays, dude, we're getting cut on, on patient visits like crazy. Um, so if we can get them in, maybe early, use it to really slow down, you know, the passive low and then get them off and maybe do it some on their own. I think that, that, huge. I, I, I've kept that in mind because I, I think I heard that maybe from you or maybe some of the other clinicians. So, you know, with our, when we're trying to train people to sense the pressure, yeah. uh, we do it once in one visit. 
with the idea that, I mean, this this actually does mimic probably the rule. We don't have multiple visits to try to thin the sense the pressure. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think we might be getting closer on that, but um, I'm always, I, I like the the new stuff that we're doing, but I always like the the practical uh, side as well. And, and how we, and, and to be fair, in a normal person, the, the, the pressure range that we can get, it probably doesn't matter. You know, you're not, you're not going to be under arterial occlusion using the method that we've used so far, at least uh, in the first couple of days. So we feel pretty comfortable that you're going to be in this wide range. Right. Um, but it probably would work. Yeah. Uh, probably would be better than just doing it without it. You'd be able to do less work, see greater adaptation, but I would not feel comfortable with that in a clinical population where we need to know for certain. Yeah, yeah. And I think you've repeatedly ago. said that, Jeremy. I mean, I've heard you on a number of different podcasts. And I think anytime the clinic gets brought up, you you make that point, you know, like yeah. clinical setting, you really need need to know. But yet I feel like on our end, as we try to teach the clinicians this stuff, we still end up getting people saying, oh, well, I heard I can just do seven out of 10. I'm like, but the guy that wrote that paper has said you shouldn't. Yeah, seven out, the seven out of 10, I think we have to abandon for sure. Completely. Um, that is, um, I think the, when that was first proposed, um, you know, one of the things that wasn't considered is that, yeah, many of them may have been below arterial occlusion, but the range of pressures is so wide yeah. that, yeah. and what we found is, is that last couple of years, Zach Bell again, is that you may be at 40% your first day, but the next day you might be at 110%. So it's seven out of 10 changes. Uh, and yeah. I think that that's makes it untenable in, in practice. Yeah, I agree. Well, cool, yeah, man. Well, I think you see that with other, with other papers too, on the perceptual side, you know, people yeah. just get more tolerant to the pressure, which seems like lo kind of logically that would be the result of a seven out of 10 is yeah. what you perceive as seven out of 10 changes over time. So. Well, yeah. I think Jeremy, didn't you put a paper out on perceptual, you know, that over a few weeks, most people talk. Yeah. I, I, I do think it's a little different because the discomfort to exercise versus the, the perception mm. at rest might be different, but yeah, yeah, I think the cool thing about that paper where we looked at the, I, I collaborated with somebody a long time ago where we showed that, but I think the cool thing about Kevin Maddox paper is that we showed it to progressive exercise. So even though we kept progressing and they were doing more and more and more, the, the discomfort did reduce. It was still higher than exercise without it, but it yeah. did reduce over time. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, quite useful. Yeah. It was like that old, I think it was a practical paper as well, but you know, they, the rugby players, they measured the cortisol levels, um, you know, when they first started BFR and perception and they both kind of trended down over time. Uh, well, so maybe it just wasn't stressful, um, yeah. to it somehow. So, yeah. well, man, I don't want to keep you too long. We, we passed our hour mark here. This is, this was badass. Um, could go on for hours <laughs> with your 142 papers. Um, but again, thanks for everything you've done for blood flow restriction, the clinical side. Um, I, like I said earlier, we've, we've got all sorts of rewards from your work out there. And, and what do you call your lab? The muscle lab or, uh, well, <laughs> the hashtag I always use is Ole Miss Muscle. Ole Miss Muscle. Uh, our, our actual lab is the Kessler Ehrman Applied Physiology Laboratory. Okay. So it's, it's named after a, a student who had passed away some time ago. Uh, not, not one of my students, but I, we still try to honor her. Uh, but yeah, we all the hashtags are Ole Miss Muscle. All right. That sounds cooler. Yeah. I saw on Instagram, I think, that you just lost your coffee maker recently. So. Yeah, our, we did. Our condolences uh, on losing the coffee maker. I appreciate Dude, I love, that. I saw that. It looked like it was from like 1979. <laughs> that thing, well, full of bacteria. All, all of my students, uh, well, they, they know how I am. Um, I will use it until it goes into the ground. And th th many of my students have been, <laughs> you know, they'd say, we can bring in a coffee maker. I'm like, the coffee maker we have is fine. Uh, but we start... <laughs> We started to run into issues where it would turn off. Um, so we taped it on and then it would, you know, <laughs> we ran into what I would consider maybe some fire hazard. So I was like, okay, actually I didn't make the decision. I was still fine with it. But, uh, Vic Wong, she was like, she just brought in a coffee maker one day. Um, so I, I don't like change. 
Um, I like things how they are. Um, <laughs> but I, I did I did see that it, it was time to move on. But, move on. Yeah. <laughs> the lab bird down that damn coffee maker <laughs> well i i my my students will laugh at this too because i have a complex when it comes to that i'll i'll, I'll text them repeatedly or, or there's nights where i go back to the lab just to make sure that it's off i have these weird fears <laughs> where i'm like we're never going to, like something's going to happen with the coffee maker the lab's going to burn down and i'm never going to know the answer to this question you know we're going to lose all of our data so goes all the blood yeah uh. We have protocols, though. It's like there's a we have tornado warnings. It's like where's the ultrasound? Just protect the ultrasound at all costs. Um, so, but yeah, That's no. Too funny. We, we've moved on with the new coffee maker. You know, it's not like the old one, but you know, I, I'm sure I'll learn to love it too. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of like getting a new dog or something. Um, yeah, it'll be endearing to you. I'm sorry about the coffee maker. I didn't know it was that that close to your heart. <laughs> your change cycle. Uh, no, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. I appreciate the kind words. I, I think the um, being, you know, surrounded by good people for long periods of time has been uh, tremendous. I think Dr. Mike Benben, um, and then connecting me with Dr. Abe, and then, you know, it's sometimes you go through cycles. But I've been lucky to where every kind of student cycle I've had has been really good. So all my students yeah. um, who just do such good work and then many of them who have graduated they've also started their own labs which is cool to see so i've been extremely fortunate extremely lucky and i hope that that continues for me but i i'm very i'm very lucky but i'm happy that we've been able to do uh and continue to do good work yeah you're kicking ass man empire builder down there try it all right so this year hopefully i can tweet out all sorts of ut kicked ou's ass Finally, in the Red River rivalry, it's been forever, man. So uh, I can tell that you. I feel like when you went down to Mexico, did you get a little sick? You're not feeling, not thinking well. Um, there's no <laughs> chance. Yeah, that, that, I, maybe I got brain damage. We still have the youngest quarterback, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the university, the prestigious University of Oklahoma. I, I think there's a good chance. You know, we got the rattlesnake at quarterback. I think there's a good chance that we win. We win everything. Oh, oh um, no! We'll probably, oh, we'll probably. Oh, our Zoom. We got the short-term Zoom account. It's about. To I know. <laughs> no, no. We're gonna, we're gonna lose to Iowa State or Kansas State, but we'll, we'll make a run at the end. Yeah, you whoop our ass and Kansas will uh, beat you. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, I guess we'll see each yeah, other thanks, September and, and talk soon. Hopefully, we're working on a grant here in the next month. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Later, man. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.